In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, our Lord, implied that there will be rains, that there will be floods, and there will be winds that will beat against our houses. As he talks really about the dwelling in the tabernacle of our soul, of our spirit. But those things are implied will occur in our life. And so we are encouraged to build our houses on a rock so that we can withstand those storms. But what are, what are those storms? Well, those storms can be a number of different things. They can be something, a physical circumstance or a physical situation that bears down on us and tests us, uh, tries to purify our convictions, where we get stretched or may even pressed down because of it. Those storms also may be speculations or philosophies or lofty things that basically raise themselves up, lift themselves up against a true knowledge of God and against the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are rulers and there are powers and there are authorities and there are worldly forces and spiritual forces of darkness which are waging war against us, against God's people. And therefore, their business is all about chipping away our confidence, trying to chip away the confidence that we have in God, in Jesus Christ, and in God's Word. And so I want to talk about that a little bit tonight and how that transpires and perhaps uh, what method is used to try to discourage us, to cause us to lose a sense of confidence in God. So we'll open your Bibles to Isaiah. In Isaiah, we're going to be looking there in a bit and reading from a text there. But as you're turning there, I want to you know, suggest to you that the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, has warned us about this. That there would be damaging storms in our lives as God's people, as disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and so you have passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and 20, where it says, The word of the cross is foolishness. It is foolishness, not to us, but it is foolishness to those who are perishing. And he goes on to ask some questions. Where is the scribe? Where is the wise man? Where is the debater of the age implying that they are not on the side of the cross? And the reason why is because God has made foolish the wisdom of men. Or over in 2 Peter chapter, chapter 3, where the apostle says, No, there's this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come. Mockers will come. And they will come where they're mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? Jude says something very similar in verse 18 and 19 of his letter, where he says, in the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lust. And he says, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. So you think about that for just a moment. 
The idea that God and His people, God and His people have always been opposed. They have always been under attack in one way or another. Sometimes it's worse than other times, but that has always been the case. For example, look in Genesis, consider Genesis 3. You're familiar with that passage? And what, what is Satan doing? Satan is personally getting involved in the life of Eve and Adam. And what he's doing, he's weakening Eve's and he's weakening Adam's, Adam's reliance and confidence in their Creator. Or you jump to the New Testament. Consider Galatians 1, where Paul is so surprised or amazed that Christians were already deserting the Gospel. But why was that so? Well, because there were teachers among those churches. The churches of Christ in Galatia. There were teachers who were drawing disciples after them by distorting the gospel. By twisting it, perverting it, changing it in some way. Now, the book of Galatians talks a lot about Judaism. So that is one aspect we see that they were trying to distort the truth concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. If confidence can be weakened, if you can weaken a man's confidence in God, if you can weaken a man's confidence in God's Word, then the strength and the steadfastness of a man of faith begins to crumble. And so, tonight, I want us to look at a unique passage to see that being done in the Old Testament. And so, in Isaiah chapter 36, in Isaiah chapter 36, we are in the days of King Hezekiah. And what you have here is you have an Assyrian officer by the name of Rabshakeh who is attempting to erode the confidence of Jerusalem. Now this is around the year 700 B.C. or 701 or so. So around the year 700 B.C., King Hezekiah is reigning on God's throne in Jerusalem and the Assyrians have besieged the city. And what you have here, you have Rabshakeh being sent by the king to speak to the city of Jerusalem. And so here he is outside the walls of Sidron, crying out and saying these words. And what he basically does, he, with a very contemptuous way and, and using sarcasm, he basically says, what is this confidence that you have? You know, who are you relying on? You know, who are you putting your confidence in? And so with that said, let us now begin our reading. We're going to read several verses in this text. But we begin in chapter, in chapter 36, verse 4. So we'll open your Bibles to Isaiah 36 and follow along as we begin at verse 4. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. 
Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which, if a man leans, he will go into his hand and pierce it. So it's Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Jude and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I not come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Johah said to Rabshakeh, speak now to your servants in Aramaic. We understand it. And do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak the words? And not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Ramshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judea and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his own vine, each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own. A land of grain, new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nation delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And when have they delivered Samaria? From my hand. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand, that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they were silent and answered not a word, for the king's commandment was, Do not answer him. As you continue reading down into the 37th chapter, you see that Rabshakeh and his troops are going to draw away from Jerusalem because they had learned that the king of Assyria and the rest of the army had left Lachish and gone over to Libna, and that's where they were fighting. And so because of that, you know, they, they are drawing, they're going to join the king in Libna, but before they leave, they send a letter. 
They send a message back to Hezekiah. It's a very threatening letter that they send to them, warning them that they will come back and they will destroy Jerusalem. So picking up in the 10th verse of the 37th chapter, it continues to read, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will, be given, will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, and destroying them completely. So will, he be, so will you be spared? Did the gods of the nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them? Even Gozan and Haran and Reseph and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath? The king of Arphad? The king of the city of Sepharvaim and of Henna and Eva. And so Hezekiah takes the letter and spreads it out and prays to God. You think about that boast. Where you have this Assyrian officer standing before Jerusalem outside the walls, making these threatening comments, and basically you have you have a very arrogant rage against Hezekiah and against the Israelites and against God. And I would suggest to you this is a common tactic. What Rabshakeh does here is really not very different from what opponents of God do today. It is a common attack of, of, of basically you know, opposing God, opposing you know, the followers of Christ, opposing any you know, of those who are walkers in light and righteousness. You know, there, you know, I would suggest to you, there are still Rabshakas today. Now, they don't go by that name. They have a different name. But there are still Rabshakas today living in the world, living in our country, who are actively hurling blasphemous words. Why? To chip away our confidence in God. To chip away our confidence in God's inspired word. To chip away the strength and the steadfastness of followers of Christ, of Christians. And so we have to be on guard. We need to be aware of the world around us. We need to be aware of the, the character and the ways of our enemy. We don't need to be ignorant of their schemes. We don't need to be ignorant of, of the ways of our spiritual adversaries. But we do need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to hear these words. We need to be ready to be able to stand and hear the onslaught of attacks, blasphemous attacks that will be hurled against God, against God's word and against God's people. And be able to stand the test. To be able to stand there confidently without losing our confidence in God and in His Word. Because when doubt is rooted, when doubt is rooted in a man's mind, it is then instability and weakness increase. And that's exactly what Rabshak was doing here. He was trying to erode the confidence 
you know, of the people in God and the confidence of the people in God's anointed one and the confidence in God's promises. He's trying to erode that so that they give in and surrender and do not stand up against him. We're told in James chapter 1, verse 8, that the doubting-minded man, the doubting-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So what, what is the tactic that's being done here in the words of Rabshakeh? I would suggest to you that what he begins here doing is, first of all, he tries to poison the reliance. Back here. He tries to poison their reliance in God, their reliance in God's word, by basically suggesting they've got cracks or flaws in their armor. That they, they are not equipped, they are not able to stand up against you know, him and against the Assyrian army. And so he wants to present to them all of these flaws, all these cracks, so that he can chip away confidence in God. I would suggest to you, for example, in verse 5, you go back and look, just glance in the verse we read earlier. In verse 5, when he begins to talk about their counsel and their strength of war, he says, it's only empty words. What's he doing there? He is undermining... Godly plans. He's undermining the plans of godly men. Now, Rabshaka doesn't care what tactic he uses. He doesn't care you know, what lies that he may speak. He doesn't care what deception he may use to manipulate his agenda. But the ungodly one will outrightly state that the words and the efforts and the plans of the people of God are vain. Whatever your plans are, you God believers, you Christ followers, whatever plans you have, whatever things you believe about it, that's all empty. That's all vain. And, you know, is he trying to back this up with anything? Well, no, he doesn't try to back it up. But he was right. He's trying to plant this undermining thought to basically undermine their plans to stand up against error against lies. And so he tries to say, you're no match against us. You, know, you cannot stand the test of time. You know, your plans will not hold water. And you think about that tactic still used today, where you think about where you've got opponents and adversaries of truth, of the gospel of Christ, will basically say something very similar and suggest that sound arguments, good defenses for the truth are not good defenses. And they start, they start saying, well, they're, they're, they're unsound. They're unreasonable. Yeah. And that you're foolish. Now, just because an unbeliever says that does not make it true. And you go back here to what he's trying to say in regard to particularly the King Hezekiah, when he says, basically, Hezekiah's counsel, Hezekiah's strength for war is empty words. He's trying to undermine the plan of attack that they have against the Assyrians. 
But not only does he start with that, he then moves on. You look there in verse 6 and some of the other verses here, like for example, verses 8 and 9. Now he begins to expose supposed weaknesses. He first, he tries to undermine whatever plan of attack they have, whatever plan of defense they have, he tries to undermine that, saying it's just empty, it's just vain, it's worthless. You know, you're not going to succeed against, against us. And then, he, number two, he goes and he tries to expose their weaknesses. Now, human wisdom will conclude, and that's what happens here, human wisdom concludes that there is no one and nothing, no one and nothing on which that, that they could depend then to sustain or protect Jerusalem. You look there in verse 6. He tries to suggest that, okay, if you, if you consider Egypt, well, they're not going to, they, they can't help you. Egypt's not, there's no help to you. But he goes on then and, and, and suggests, you know, for them to bargain him. He says, and, and if you trust in the Lord, who's that? And so he's trying to expose some weaknesses in them and saying, there is no man, there is no being, there is no country, there is no power capable to stand up against me. And the thing is, you just have to plant the idea. That's all you have to do. Just plant the idea, plant the suggestion in another person's head that they are powerless. And they're powerless because they're relying on a lie. It doesn't have to be true what they're saying. But just, just suggest you are powerless because you're, you're standing on a lie. And that's what he's doing about with God here. And what it does, it just gives doubt an opportunity to wiggle its way into the heart of that person. And that's all he needed. He just needs a, a, a little crack for that doubt to start weaving itself into the heart and the thinking you know, and the minds and the, and the emotions of the people. Because then they begin to question themselves. And they start questioning themselves, you know, you know, have I made the best decision? Have I made the right choice? And they had. You know, Hezekiah was leading Jerusalem, the nation, down the right path. They had made the right choice. They had made the best decision. But Rashaka, he just simply wanted trying to expose these supposed weaknesses that they have. That you, know, you, are, you are not equipped. You are unable in any way to turn me away. Another thing that he does to suggest a, a way to basically poison their alliance, and that is, let's cause some division in the ranks. And so when you look there in verse 7 particularly, it says, you know, if you say we trust in the Lord our God, he says, is it not he whose high places, whose altars has a guy has taken away? And what's he doing here? He's insinuating, he's insinuating that the leadership was making poor judgments. He's insinuating that the leadership was making bad decisions. And so if he can't succeed in undermining whatever plans of defense they have, 
If you can't succeed in trying to expose that, well, you've got some weaknesses and, and you're in grave danger, you know, thirdly what we can do, we can just cause division among them. You know, the fact that Rabshakeh was ignorant, was ignorant of the purpose, the reason why Hezekiah removed all of those idols and altars is inconsequential to Rabshakeh. He doesn't care what the reason is. He doesn't have to know that there was, there was a, a good reason to remove all that idolatry from the land. But that doesn't matter to Rabshakeh because that doesn't fit into his objective. He just has one objective. Let me plant some ideas. Let me insinuate some things where I can cause division among the ranks of the Israelite people. Let me insinuate that leadership is making bad decisions and bad judgment. Let me accuse the leadership of deception. Let me accuse them of hiding the truth that they have the inability to save them. And you see that in, in these verses. When you particularly get down to verse 12 and following, when he, he, when he says, uh, he's going to speak to the people as well. In verse 14, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. And so he, he's, he's trying to create this division between the king and the people. Between you know, the leader and the, and the followers. You know, if, if you feel that you're being used or manipulated by those in positions of influence, if you start thinking that way, you start feeling that way, that you're being used and manipulated by those in positions of influence and power, generally what do we do? We start turning our ears elsewhere. We start listening to somebody else. And it doesn't matter if the someone else is, is unwise. It doesn't matter if you know, the other things other people are saying are unwise words to, to listen. But if we start feeling and thinking that those that we are following were misleading us because someone has insinuated deception, they, they, they have insinuated the fact that they're hiding the truth, then we're, we're going we're gonna to start looking elsewhere. Also in verse 12, you can see this idea of spreading fear. The fear of lost causes when he says, you know, I wasn't sent here just to talk to the leadership. I was sent to talk to everybody. And he cries out very loudly. If they weren't here before, now they are going to hear what he has to say. And he cries out very loudly and says, you know, you're all doomed. You're all doomed to die of starvation. And so, like I say, if you present this idea, there's no hope, there's no salvation, there's no deliverance, there's no remedy for you, many begin to consider that the alternative is a good solution. And so that's what he does. He says, you're all doomed to die. And he says, what you need to do, you need to you know, Bargain. You need to accept what the king of Assyria is offering you. If you just come out, if you'll just surrender to, to, to me, he says, 
we'll let you, you know, eat your own food, drink from your own water until we carry you off to a, a better land. And basically he's trying to say, you know, here is an alternative to escape this siege of the city. So you don't have to experience any hardship. You don't have to experience any suffering. Here, let me give you an alternative path that's easier for you. All of that is simply a way to try to poison a man's heart that's trying to rely in hard times on God. Trying to rely in hard times on God's Word. And if this doesn't work, then he goes to his next uh, uh, tactic where he now begins to diminish the sovereignty of the one true God. In chapter 36, verse 10, he makes a very bold claim. He says, How then, you know, he says, Have I now come without the Lord's approval against his land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, This guy is saying, God talked to me. God spoke to me. And so basically he's saying, I am God directed. I am God approved. And he said, I was told to go up against the land and destroy it. Isaiah has some other things to say earlier on about Assyria in all the prophecies of this book. And so what you have here, you've got a guy who's like, he, he, okay, he tried to poison their reliance on God. Now let me diminish God's sovereignty. And so he, he, no matter how presumptuous, no matter how presumptuous it may be, one way to start to diminish God's sovereignty and your reliance on the sovereignty of God is for somebody to start saying, well, God has spoken to me. You know, I know something different. I know something better. The Spirit has led me in this way. And what happens is such possibilities then begin to cause some individuals, not all, but it can cause some individuals to begin to question the inspiration of God's Scriptures. If there is this possibility, hey, maybe God has spoken to me. Maybe I've been misled. Maybe there's something different that I don't know. And this guy has the answers for me. And so what happens is man's thoughts and man's feelings and man's experiences now suddenly are considered equal to God's authority. Just make a claim. It doesn't have to be true. And you don't have to get, you know, back it up with anything. Just make the claim. Because all you're trying to do is chip away some confidence to weaken that faith. But more than just that, you look, you look over in, a little farther on in, in chapter 36. You look down in verse 18 and following, you know, where he says, Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nation delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? And so verse 20, who among all the gods and lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand too? What's he doing? Well, first of all, he said, you know, God told me to come here and destroy you. But secondly, now he's, doing, he's bringing Jehovah down on par with idol gods. 
He basically said, Jehovah God, the one true living God, the creator of the universe, the creator of the heaven and the earth and all there is, he's bringing that true living God down on par with false gods, idol gods. And he basically is saying, Jehovah is no different from the other gods. You know, your, your, your religion, your worship of Jehovah is no different from other religions. Faith in Jehovah is no different from other faith. You're all the same. Jehovah's power, Jehovah's authority is no greater than anybody else or anything else. Other gods failed, and so will Jehovah. Jehovah will fail too. If that was true, what would it do to you? If that was true, you stop listening to God, wouldn't you? You would stop submitting to God. You would stop obeying God if that was true. It's not true. Ratchak is not concerned about truth. He's concerned about power and control and influence. And then you look down in the 37th chapter where he then insinuates he then insinuates that God is unable to do what he has promised. That God is unable to do what he has said. In verse 10, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. So earlier I talked about how, okay, Hezekiah is deceiving you. Now he's saying, your God is deceiving you. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you by deceiving you by your God, saying, Jerusalem will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't believe that message from your God that says that you will be victorious over me. And so it's a question of omnipotence. The omnipotence of the Creator. And he's basically using it based on recent transactions. The fact that they have succeeded in conquering many nations, destroying many people. And so he said, based upon that recent those recent events of conquest, he says, based upon those things, your God cannot do what he promises. And so he, he not only brings him down on the level of idolatry, now he says, your God is impotent. Your God is powerless. Your God is a deceiver. Your God is a deceiver. The fact that He calls you to trust on Him and He calls you to trust on, on His Word while the circumstances around you presently appear to be falling apart. Your, 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 the, your situation does not appear good and so you know, your God must not be alive. Your God must not be real. Your God must not love you. He must not care for you. Because of what's happening right now. And so he suggests that God is not present. And he's going to be just like all the false gods that were powerless. Because they were just the imagination and the makings of men. 
where Jehovah is the creator of all. And so this tactic is repeated again and again in our times as well. You think about the various ways that speculations and philosophies and the raising up of different arguments that basically are designed to cause you or your reliance to be poisoned you know, because of what, you know, what they suggest or causes you to not see that God is still the sovereign of the universe. Just because they say it doesn't make it true. Everybody lives by a faith. Everybody lives by a faith. The believer in God walks by faith. The unbeliever in God walks by faith. And the challenges that we have today as a people who profess to be followers of God and servants of Jesus Christ is that we need to look at the evidence and allow the evidence be the foundation on which our faith is built. And just be ready, be aware, be, be prepared to hear the arguments, the tactic that, that is used you know, when he tries to suggest that you know, your reliance in God is, is empty, it's vain. Try to expose supposed weaknesses or cause division among you. Or maybe insinuate that the leadership that, you, that is helping you is deceiving or the God that you, you're following is deceiving you. They don't care if it's true or not. They just care about their agenda. And we need to be ready for that. And ready to hear the onslaught that's going to be thrown at us and just remember, remember what God has done. You think about our study of Deuteronomy and the various feast days that you know, were instituted and established by Jehovah. And why were they instituted? They were instituted to help the people remember. Remember who God is. To remember what He did. To remember that He is still very much alive and real. And He is the one true living God. And we need to do the same. We need to remember God. He hasn't changed. Just because circumstances may get more difficult for us, or circumstances may get hard, or maybe circumstances bring suffering upon us. God hasn't changed. He's the same today as He was yesterday and will be tomorrow. Put your faith in God. Rely on Him no matter what happens. Because He is sovereign. And He will deliver. And that's exactly what He did, did He not? In the days of Hezekiah, where you have an army of 185,000 soldiers. Yeah, that was only part of the army. But 185,000 of, of the Assyrian army was found dead in one night. Give you a little project. Go Google you know, military fatalities in U.S. wars. And you'd be amazed that 185,000 dead 
men on the ground exceeds a number of wars that we have engaged in as a nation. That was God. Remember that. Remember God. He is sovereign. He is the true and living God, and He loves you, He cares about you, and He longs for all of us to come to repentance so that we may have fellowship with Him and one day live with Him eternally in heaven. That we will be delivered from these bodies of ours that are marred and growing weaker day by day delivered from these vessels and tabernacles in which our soul abides and will be transformed unto a glorious body just as Jesus Christ Himself was. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you do, we want to encourage you to make that pledge, to make that commitment to have an allegiance to Christ as your King, as your Lord, as your Savior, by confessing Him with your mouth that He is God's Son, repenting of your sins, and being baptized in His name for the remission of your sins, and you will be cleansed. You can count on that. God does not lie. If you are a Christian, and there's sin in your life that you've not corrected, that is separating at this moment from your God. If we can assist you any way spiritually, we encourage you, we invite you, please come forward, make your wishes known, and always stand and sing the songs.